the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Thanks for listening to the Town Hall Review with Hugh Hewitt podcast, bringing to you the best voices on the stories and issues that matter. Helping make it all possible is the generous partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy and ADF, the Alliance Defending Freedom. Here's a piece I hope you'll enjoy from my friend, Dennis Prager. Molly Hemingway, whom I've had on a number of occasions, senior editor at The Federalist, and Carrie Severino, senior counsel for the Judicial Crisis Network. They've co-authored the book. Just out again, Justice on Trial, the Kavanaugh Confirmation and the Future of the Supreme Court. So could you two have written this book uh, going back all the way to to Judge Bork? Is there something different? Have Was there a watershed with Brett Kavanaugh, or is it a continuation of the borking of Republican nominees? This is Molly Dennis, and, and I would say that that has both an affirmative and a negative response. We thought this was a great example, a great story to tell about something that has been going back to, to the Bork nomination and really reflects just struggles that we have had over the Supreme Court nomination process going back decades. As the court has gotten more political, as it has had a change in, in the nature of the court itself, where the justices seem to think that their role is more political. We have seen nomination battles get more political. A conservative views this as an important thing where the, the justice will just um, know what the law is and say what the law is. But for the left, if the law doesn't meet with what they want it to be, they start getting more political, even at that high court level. So you see this going back to Bork, but in the Kavanaugh story, it really was so much worse what we saw, this attempt to destroy someone's life and to destroy the very notion of rule of law. Why does it destroy the very notion of rule of law? Yeah, this is Carrie. So we were concerned because what we saw in this thing is not just, again, attacking an individual, but putting justice itself on trial. You had people who, who are our elected representatives sworn to uphold the Constitution who were saying, who were basically throwing due process out the window. They were saying that if anyone, any woman makes an allegation, they must be believed, hands down, you don't actually look at the evidence, you don't ask any questions. And they were, they were suggesting really that there be a presumption of guilt, not a presumption of innocence. That's not how our Constitution is set up. And that's not how our, our rule of law is set up. Anytime you have that, then everyone is at the mercy of anyone who wants to make an, an allegation against them, however unfounded. And it was particularly worrisome that they were willing to throw this out in the context of a confirmation battle that played out with such a big role for the media. And that's one of the things we detail in a story that kind of runs through our book is how the Democrats in, in their, their coordinated campaign with the media, with others, to try to bring down this confirmation. There were so many examples where, unfortunately, many in the media were either turning a blind eye to evidence they should have looked into more, taking um, the statements of anyone who's opposed to Kavanaugh um, with, without any question and without any critical thinking and not being, kind of ignoring the other side of the story, and then sometimes even burying actual evidence 
One that I found really particularly outrageous was an example. Remember, Julie Swetnick was the one who was claiming that um, Kavanaugh engaged in serial gang rape. And Michael Avenatti, her now disgraced lawyer, uh, claimed he had a second witness to back this up. Well, it turns out NBC News had interviewed her, this second witness, and she said, I didn't say the stuff that Avenatti is telling today. I said, I'm not even going to keep working with him because he's twisted my words so much. They didn't tell America that when he came out with the witness. They just kept mom and let everyone believe he was plausible. They didn't come out with that until weeks after he was already confirmed, when it was already too late to be relevant to the questions. That's the kind of um, cooperating with one side and not telling what really should have been a blockbuster news story, um, hiding that. That's not what the media is supposed to be doing. I am compiling a, 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 a list of lies the media has told because they have, they keep charging the president with lying. And I can't say he's a, he's a major truth teller, but he tells much more truth than the media does. This is a very powerful example you just gave. I was not aware of it. I, I'd like you to respond to the position I took immediately, which was very rare in American media, even among conservatives, and I'm not saying that as, as praise. I may have been wrong. I want you to know, I want you to react to what my position was. I believed that uh, there should never have been a hearing to begin with, uh, that you don't take something that happened that allegedly a man did or a woman did in high school uh, some 40 years later, 30, whatever many years later it was, uh, and have a, a hearing on it. How do you react to that? This is Molly here, and I love that you had that thought. We interviewed more than 100 people, including the president, several Supreme Court justices, and dozens of senators. And one of the things that we found interesting was learning more about the debate within the Senate about whether to have a hearing or not. And so some of the people we interviewed, like Mitch McConnell and Senator Chuck Grassley, thought it was absurd to hold a hearing. You don't get to make an allegation, particularly one without any evidence at all, just as a random person, and get a nationwide hearing and derailing of the process. But unfortunately for them, there was a very narrow uh, narrow political situation they were dealing with. They didn't have all the votes of the Republicans on their committee, and they were on the Judiciary Committee, and I think they were actually shocked and maybe even quite disappointed at at how many people on that committee, how many Republicans on that committee demanded a hearing and a full airing. Now, some of these senators were old enough to have remembered what happened with the Clarence Thomas hearings and how absurd and circus-like that had become, but others were younger and apparently did not have that memory. Yeah. And this is, Carrie, I think it's also important to remember that after the Thomas and Hill hearing, there was actually a procedure put in place to address exactly what you're saying here. It's not. We're not saying that they should ignore any allegations that come up. The Senate wanted a way to confidentially address those, to look into them and see whether it's something that merited action, and not have to drag both the nominees and the accusers' names and lives out into the public. So they put up, put together a system where the FBI would be able to look at these. The senators could discuss them confidentially. Senator Feinstein was well aware of this process. She had participated in it numerous times. She's been in the Senate for decades and knows about this. She sidestepped that entire process the whole time that she had that letter in her um, in her office and was not doing anything with it until after the hearing, after they even spent a special hour at the end of the hearing. You didn't get to see this on TV. They, they turn off the cameras, and the senators go into a secret meeting with just the nominee where they can ask exactly that kind of question. She didn't even attend that meeting. So they purposely sidestepped a process designed to get to the truth instead opting for a process designed to get maximum media 
impact. She claimed that the uh, the woman who made the charges asked that it not be made public, and this was, the, if I, if I have that, if my memory serves correctly. So, first of all, is that true? What did the letter say? Please don't make this public. I just want you to know about this. What what was the request being made, and what did did Diane Feinstein do? So we have the stated uh, expressed views of Christine Blasey Ford, where she repeatedly said that she did not want it to be made public. And that is why that process that Carrie outlined, where you can confidentially address allegations, would have been the proper place for the allegation to have been investigated. But you also have evidence that maybe, despite that stated claim, that that wasn't the whole truth. And I would say, first off, the fact that the very first phone call made by Christine Blasey Ford is to the Washington Post, which is not the normal course of action if you want to keep something secret. If you want to keep something secret, you usually don't break the news with the reporter that you contacted at the Washington Post. Usually you wouldn't take a polygraph and come up with a public relations plan. So we can't speak to what her actual motivation was, but we can only look at what the facts are. And the facts are it was a pretty quick contact with the one of the largest newspapers in the country. I don't know if you can even answer this, but on, on a human level, I'm going to ask a human, not a political question. Do you think, and it's, I, I, I totally understand it's speculation, but you have informed speculation. Do you think she is happy she made these charges and had the hearing in retrospect? Yeah, I mean, this is Carrie. I think we, we can't really speculate as to what her position is. What we wanted to try to focus on in our book is to do the best job we could finding out all of the facts that we could and putting that in front of the American people so we can make your own decisions. And, you know, one of the stories that I thought was really interesting and and informs this process is learning about Christine Blasey Ford's own close friend, Leland Kaiser. This is a woman she said was at that party with her, who herself is a registered Democrat, lifelong Democrat, did not want Kavanaugh on the court and wanted to support her friend, but at the same time was put in a situation where she realized as well as she remembered that summer, and she did, it was an important summer in her life, she was racking her brain trying to come up with anything to support her friend. She was very surprised to hear this story. And she puts out a statement saying, you know, she loves and supports her friend, but she doesn't recall the party or ever having met Kavanaugh. And then as she continues, um, she starts getting pressure from other friends to say that she did remember, and she felt that that was witness intimidation, and she ends up not only telling the FBI that she had had been a victim of this witness intimidation, but also that she had had time to reflect on this summer that she knew extremely well. This was a very formative summer for her. She was very close to Christine Blasey Ford. She remembered driving her around a lot um, and that she had nothing to, to recall this, even though she remembered so many other events from that summer quite well. And it just was striking to us because so many people involved in this story, they are on the left or they're on the right. They make predetermined conclusions. Here was a woman who had all the political motivation to to say something other than what she knew to be the truth, and she stood strong. And it was a story of courage that I don't think, you know, that the media have not told. So is that that's sort of equivalent to the NBC suppression of its story? 
Oh, yeah. I mean, this is this is a pattern that we have seen throughout this process, and those are only a few examples where the media is effectively, um, and obviously not all the media. There are people who are doing their job, but it was unfortunately, by and large. Wait, 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 wait. Forgive me. Can you name someone in the mainstream media who did their job? I mean, I would like to cite some good people in the mainstream media. I think there were, there were almost none, so I'd love to know who they are. Yeah, I would. I would not. This is Molly now. I would not be able to name many people who did a good job. I we were heartened to see a few other people who were discovering problems, such as Kim Strassel at the Wall Street Journal, who was being yeah, exactly, exactly. But one of the worst things I saw too was that you know we we were reporting this outside from Washington D.C. This is a story that's actually well known at a community level there, and we talked with dozens of people who knew Kavanaugh or Christine Blasey Ford from high school days, and what. What Blasey Ford's friends remember was so much at odds with these hagiographies you were seeing in the Washington Post. You know, they liked their friend. They enjoyed their friend. They remembered someone who was a heavy drinker, who was very much more aggressive with boys than they were. That was a completely different picture than what was painted by these very sympathetic profiles that were trying to make Kavanaugh out to be a serial gang rapist. And in fact, his friends who knew him well, male, female, um, they do not, they had said he was just a man even in high school, you know, yeah, he liked to drink, but he was so polite with ladies and, and whatnot, and they had kept their friendships over the course of decades. These, This was not what we were told when this was going on. I'm going to ask you a question that transcends uh, the specific issue, and, and if you don't have an answer, I totally respect that. One of the biggest uh, philosophical and moral questions that I have posed with regard to the left in the in last decade is do they believe their lies and i i don't mean it as a cute uh, partisan question i really mean it and it's an honest question do, did, do you believe in retrospect that all those democrats and all those pe- on the on the uh, on the uh, the senate uh, uh, inquiry and all those people in the media do they believe that uh, he raped her and he was a serial rapist well, one thing that has been very interesting to watch is at the time we're hearing all of these wild claims, right? And since he's been on the court, since there's nothing that they could achieve politically by blocking him, have you seen, you know, the follow-up where they have said actually now that we need more time, they said, we need more time to look into these these uh, stories. We haven't seen anything actually emerge from that. I think that's telling. I think it's also clear, and this is something that we, that we, we were really excited to find out, there were actual instances, you know, one that comes to mind is Senator Hirono, who said to Senator Harris, kind of backstage, uh, behind the scenes of these Judiciary Committee meetings, things like, oh, it was so great that we had Christine, uh, Blasey Ford wear a blue suit and ask for Coke because it, to draw those parallels to Anita Hill. So they were really acting, um, hand in hand with the PR team trying to turn this into a, a big thing. So I, I don't know what they, what's in their, uh, their heart of hearts in terms of their thoughts on this, but it certainly was being treated in a cynical way, I think. And I would only add that there, there is more proof in the pudding, which is if it were horrific to even consider Kavanaugh for the Supreme Court because of how serious these allegations were, how much worse would it be now that he is on the Supreme Court? We know that he would be impeached in a heartbeat if anybody found actual evidence that he was what these people claimed to him to be. And the fact that they didn't, that they're not even, you know, the, the media kind of just went away after that. And, and all these allegations just went away, even if they are giving awards to Christine Blasey Ford and whatnot. I think that speaks to their lack of veracity in a way that I hope they would find troubling about themselves. Well, you can hope all you like. 
Well, I, I wrote 25 years ago, being on the left means never having to say you're sorry. I think this would be uh, one of those examples. What is the price that it took on Brett Kavanaugh? Yeah, it was, it was a real privilege to get to learn more about him, about his really Im- impressive family and what they, they went through. You know, his, his wife was really an amazing uh, strength to her, not just her family, to his parents and her daughters, but also to the friends around her. And, you know, I, I don't think anyone, there was not a dry eye in the house, if you recall, during his opening statement when he talked about his own daughter, Liza, and what a model that was where she told her mother, and as we learned, this is something that Ashley Kavanaugh told him on the way to that hearing, saying, you know, Liza said, we should be praying for the woman who is accusing you. And he said, that's, you know, we, I need to include that. He took out his Sharpie. He edited his speech right there and added that line, which I think is one of the lines that was the most impactful of that very moving speech. I would also say that we did see a, an evolution for Brett Kavanaugh over the course of the hearings, meaning when he starts, he is the quintessential Bush nominee, Bush-type uh, Republican nominee that you might expect. He... Uh, he worked in the Bush White House for such a long time. And then over the course of events, as this is going, as this is happening to him, he starts to realize just that he needs to fight not for the Supreme Court seat, but just for his name, honor, and reputation. Having said that, he said he would be the same judge he had been for 12 years on the lower. Right. You're saying that Judge Kavanaugh, now justice, of course, but Judge Kavanaugh was in the in the Bush appointee mode of uh, and, and this is what I take from that concept these are Republicans who have no idea what they're fighting and that uh, you implied that this awakened at least the judge and many and perhaps others not many but perhaps others as to the moral nature of the opposition is that legitimate Right. That it was me, Molly, who was talking about this. One of the we interviewed so many people who had been giving now Justice Kavanaugh advice. And frankly, he has friends from his time in the Bush administration. He has friends who are in the Trump administration. But we kept on hearing people talk about the Bushies. The Bushies would say, Be deferential, be polite, talk about how much you know, how much you love women. And then the people Don McGahn, who was then White House counsel, was saying was just reminding him, Remember, you are a Trump nominee and Trump nominees fight. It is, I think, indicative of this larger issue that we're seeing in the country right now and among conservatives. How much do they realize the how much do they realize how serious the nature of the fight is? Do they think this is just business as usual? Or are they seeing on the left this attempt to destroy institutions, destroy ways of life, and that if that's true, that you need to have some pretty smart and thoughtful ways to fight people, including just the courage of your convictions. But we also noted that when Donald Trump was putting together his list of who would be the type of nominee or who would be the nominees that he would be placing on the court and, and elevating at lower courts, um, he made courage of convictions one of the things that he was looking for. So it wasn't sufficient that you had the right views. You also needed to have shown strength under fire. And so they were looking for judges who had made tough who had, who had written rulings adhering to the law, even when politically that was a difficult thing to do. And I think we have seen in the past couple of years how looking for that, making that part of the criteria has paid off for the Trump administration. Right. So I would just say to my audience, 
to my listeners, this is why I have said for almost all of my life, there is a uh, a war in this country, tragically, thank God, not violent, and only one side is fighting. That's the reason I said this. The naivete among most conservatives and Republicans with regard to the left uh, is uh, is indefensible. So sometimes people awaken. It's the cruelty of the left. I believe those hearings were cruel. I saw a man humiliated. I was raised in the Jewish tradition that taught me in yeshiva that whoever humiliates someone publicly, it's as if he has murdered him. It stuck with me my whole life. That's why I didn't allow any Monica Lewinsky jokes, not one, on my show during that era, because the woman is created in God's image and you can't mock her. But uh, the uh, the Democrats make the mockery of individuals. It's it, it's a sort of it's it, it's an art form. So that is uh, that it was a very important uh, statement that you made about uh, uh, the, the as as you call it the Bushies. Is he is he healed now? What is your sense? So this is Carrie. I I think actually Justice Kavanaugh has come through this process really impressively well and strong. I think there's a lot to be said for his faith and his family's faith in terms of bringing them through that. Um, and it's kind of thing where, you know, you go through fire and you come out refined. I do think it, it brings home, however, the reasons. I don't think I ever fully understood in the way I do now why um, crimes against reputation actually are treated so seriously in the Bible. And it's because here's someone who, when he was in the Court of Appeals, had one of the finest reputations in the country, well-respected, across party lines as as a judge, as a human being, as someone with great temperament. And now, for better or for worse, almost no matter what facts we can bring out and what whatever facts come out, there still is a substantial minority of the American people who will always think, well, this man's a serial gang rapist. Uh, when I think about how the, the left has carried on all these years in defaming Clarence Thomas, one presumes that they will continue to do this with regard to Brett Kavanaugh. Is, is that fair or am I uh, overstating? Yeah, so Go ahead. This, this is scary. And, and I, I feel this very strongly myself because I clerked for Justice Thomas. I know what an amazing man he is as a boss, as a mentor, as a real father figure in many ways to his clerks. And it, is, it was so outrageous what they tried to do to him. But the most disturbing part to me is that it doesn't end with the confirmation. We saw so many things, so many parallels in the Kavanaugh confirmation to the Thomas hearing from the spurious attacks on his, on his record to attempts to fight with documents to last minute uh, scurrilous allegations. But now I'm worried that we're going to see the next phase with Thomas. What that was, was revisionist history attacking him and trying to discredit his incredible record on the court. So when he was the day he was confirmed, the Americans two to one believed him over Anita Hill. They had just watched this whole thing play out and they believed Thomas. I think if you took those polls today, you would not see those same numbers. And it's because we have been through decades of a solid and steady drumbeat against him, kind of reinforcing the left narrative. We didn't want that to be able to happen to Justice Kavanaugh. And you know that's what they will try to do. There are already people writing books that are just going to carry on those same narratives we saw from the left that are going to try to discredit Kavanaugh's record, which we've already seen from his first term, is been, has been solid decisions in favor of religious liberty, in favor of the, the separation of powers in the Constitution, in favor of keeping the court out of politics 
when it comes to uh, gerrymandering. These are great decisions, and they're going to try to undermine them by trying to portray him and carry on this this uh, smear campaign. I, I think we think the best way to stop that is to get the truth out there, and that's why it was so important to do all of this research and to get these stories where the American people can see what was going on. That's going to be the best chance for preventing that kind of uh, damage in the future. I'm going to summarize some calls coming in. Uh, I'm saying this to you, and I'm saying this to my listeners, so uh, please stay on. I, I, I do want to get some of the issues that people are raising. For example, in Spokane, Washington, Joy says her friends worked uh, with uh, Blasey Ford. She's had to move several times since the trial, and she is a victim. Your response? Well, this was something that we learned while we were going through the process, that there were people who were attacking Blasey Ford. There were people who were attacking Kavanaugh. They both received, uh, by, you know, by their own claims, death threats. They were getting um, all sorts of, of attacks at their home addresses and whatnot. And it was horrible. And it is, and there is no defense for doing this uh, with anyone. This is why we care about due process and rule of law and why we do follow the 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 order that is in place for how to handle allegations. An allegation can be made, then we evaluate the evidence. And to do it in an orderly fashion and not in a political fashion is important. That's why we don't know, you know, with Blasey Ford, uh, what her motivation was. We also don't know what the motivation of the people who were using her, frankly, were. You know, Dianne Feinstein should have handled this in a different way. When the allegation was made, there was a discreet way to handle it. That's not done by contacting a well-known uh, public relations firm, an attorney who then orchestrate a big campaign. That is not in the best interest of any alleged victim. What would Diane Feinstein respond? Well, this is Carrie. I think when, one of the things she kept going back to is saying, well, she asked for secrecy and privacy. Again, we would say this is because this is why the confidential process is the most important uh rules to follow, and and that's simply what was not followed. And, I, I, you know, none of us can, can speak to the actual motivations there. What we wanted to do was report the facts, and you can see by the way it was carried out that, you know, maybe whether, whether Ford herself wanted this privacy or not, we can't know, but we do know the people around her were certainly not acting in a way that would have preserved that. They were acting in a way to maximize the media outcome of this event. So I, I also think it's really important that this didn't work to block his nomination this time, because if we had seen that be a successful effort to take down the Kavanaugh confirmation, then I think that would be the best way to guarantee that every single vacancy from here on would have been a similar uh, campaign of smears of personal attacks against judges. I, I spend my career advocating for judges who are going to be faithful to the Constitution. I absolutely think we have to be critical of who is being nominated and look at their judicial philosophies, but it's never appropriate to make it a personal attack. And I think if that had succeeded, then we would see that consistently going here and on out. So it's our duty as the American people to make sure that kind of behavior doesn't pay for those on the left who are trying to push these kind of tactics on our nomination, on nomination process. How is the future of the Supreme Court affected by this particular instance, the Kavanaugh instance? Yeah, this is Carrie. I think one of the stories that I thought was so interesting was learning about how before this nomination even occurred, Ashley Kavanaugh was literally praying 
that her husband would not actually be nominated. She thought he was absolutely one of the best picks for the job, but she had already been through not one, but two very contentious confirmation processes with him because the Democrats had stalled his first nomination and he had to even renominate again. So she knew it could get really ugly. Even she did not understand how ugly this confirmation would get to historic levels. What worries us, and one of the reasons we wrote Justice on Trial to help get this message out, is that if that's what people were saying even before this, what happens when there's another vacancy, when it's perhaps Justice Ginsburg being replaced by a Trump nominee? Can you imagine the outrage in the left and the, the depths to which they may go? We're very concerned that if we um, can't figure out how to fight back against this kind of opposition during the confirmation process, it becomes very difficult for the most qualified men and women out there to be willing to put themselves and to put their families through a confirmation process that's so personally brutal and damaging. So we think that that is not what we want to see. It's not going to be good for America to have that kind of a process looming in front of anyone who, who simply wants to serve his or her country. That's right. That's the reason I've been saying this, and I don't know if we'll ever actually see it happen, but uh, it's happening somewhat, that uh, Republicans and conservatives understand what they're up against. These are not nice people, and uh, I feel bad for senators. I I feel bad for a Republican senator who, who, you know, has to every day dine with or share an elevator with or a committee membership with People he has contempt for, or she has contempt for, and deservedly. That's the point. Not because they differ, but because they're disgusting. So I don't know. I don't know how they do it. I couldn't. Anyway, it is what it is. You've written a terrific book, Justice on Trial, the Kavanaugh Confirmation, and the Future of the Supreme Court. Molly and Carrie, thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Town Hall Review. Our program is coming today in partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. It's America's most unique graduate leadership program offered on Pepperdine's breathtaking campus in Malibu, California. Learn more at publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. If you're enjoying the podcast, please tell a friend to go to Town Hall Review and sign up as well today. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.